I want to say hi to everybody in this room and everybody that's joining us at all of our campuses, people joining us online. This is such an amazing device, isn't it? Can you imagine your life without this? Would you like to imagine your life without this? Uh, it is such a gift and yet such a burden. And I have to tell you, I can't imagine anybody that I would rather listen to or have our church listen to about this subject of technology, life, spirit, faith, God, than Andy Crouch. Uh, he is one of my favorite people in the whole world. I've known him for years. We're involved together at Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, he is a writer. He is a thinker. He is a communicator. You'll be able to tell really quickly he has an extraordinary mind, but his spirit is better than his mind. And uh, he is uh, a, a person that you just love to be around, ton of energy. Some of you will know we just lost over these past several days a man by the name of Eugene Peterson who was a giant in the world of the life of those of us who are people of faith. And every generation wonders, where are those voices that will come that can speak to us like that voice? And Andy is one of those voices. And uh, what I want is for us to make Menlo his favorite speaking experience of all time. So Andy, would you come up? And everybody at every campus, would you make this Andy's favorite place to preach? Oh, man. Okay, okay. You're my favorite. Wasn't that hard? I'm so happy to be in this room with this congregation, also by the magic of technology with other congregations. I'm not just glad that I'm there by video, but that you are there with one another uh, listening uh, to this wherever you are listening to it. Um, and indeed, I want to talk about technology. Uh, with you for a few minutes. I want to explore this in, the, in terms of something I've been thinking about as a kind of dilemma. A dilemma is something that has two sides that seem to operate in tension with one another. And the dilemma I want to talk about uh, is what I've come to call the upgrader's dilemma. The upgrader's dilemma. And here's the first half of the dilemma. The things we upgrade are getting better and better, just without a doubt. So John held up his iPhone. I will hold up my iPhone. It's a ritual we go through at Menlo Church all the time as people hold up their iPhones. Um, and when I think about when this was first introduced, uh, 2007, just a few miles from where I'm standing right now by Steve Jobs, what an incredible improvement it was over the analogous devices at that time. And then when I think about how much better my iPhone, which I purchased last year, is from the one he introduced. I mean, there's just no doubt things are getting better. And some of you have great Apple radar, and you're noticing I'm holding up an iPhone 8. It's not an iPhone 10 or an iPhone XS Max or whatever they're called. Uh, and you're thinking, ew, it's like so old. And like, <laughs> you have an LED screen or LCD screen. This is, you know. But uh, I like it because it's so much better than the one I had before. And the one I'll have next is even better. So one side of the upgraders dilemma is in certain areas of our lives, things are just unarguably improving. And many of us get to work in fields where we just see incremental but real overtime dramatic improvement. And at the same time, how is our sense of the world as a whole, the world inside us and the world around us? Does it feel like you are getting a massive upgrade every fall in the world? Do you feel like, oh man, when I think back 11 years ago to now, I mean, it's like going from iOS 4 to iOS 12. It's like so much better. This is not how I feel about my own internal life, 
my fears and fantasies, my capacity for attention, my capacity for love. I do not feel like I've gotten a huge upgrade. And then I think about my neighborhood and my community and what I see unfolding, and then I think about the nation I live in. I do not feel like we're getting an upgrade. <laughs> if anything, it feels like we're getting some downgrades. And this is the dilemma, that at the same time as some things, some, some things are progressing in such clear ways, other things really do not feel like they are progressing. And what really makes this a dilemma is these two things seem perhaps that they're connected. And some people are starting to feel that actually maybe the things we're able to upgrade are somehow contributing to our failure to really make the kind of progress that we thought we might have been able to make. And the interesting thing is that one group of people who feel this the most keenly are a group that we generally think of as very pro-technology, and it's young people. So there was, there's an elementary school in Boston called the William Trotter Elementary School, and they gave their third graders a, a really interesting assignment. They said, we'd like you to cast all uh, presuppositions aside and just design the most amazing playground. Like, what, what would be your ideal playground? So the third graders worked really hard on this. They actually created a scale model of the playground, and they unveiled it uh, to their school. And here's what they put at the entrance to their playground. They put a phone locker. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a place to put your phones. When you enter the playground, you have to put your phones in there and lock them up. And then there's a sign that says, no phones allowed unless it is an emergency. <laughs> so when these kids were thinking, okay, well, let's just think, like, you know, zero-based budgeting, like, what would be the greatest playground? They thought, well, obviously, it can't be a place where people have their phones because that is no fun. That's just their in instant instinct. There's this group called the Barner Group. They do kind of social research. I worked with them on some research on technology and family in particular. And they asked uh, a very wide panel of teenagers, teenagers, if you could change one thing in your relationship with your parents, what would you change? Do you know what the number one answer was to what teenagers would like to change if they could change anything in their relationship with their parents? What they said was, the most common answer, I wish my parents would spend less time on their phones and more time talking to me. How can it be that this technology, and it's not just phones, it's lots of other things, that gives us such a sense of delight and progress and possibility, at the same time seems tied up with dissatisfaction and even anxiety, disappointment, disillusionment. And how do we think about that as Christians? Now, I think we could simply resolve this dilemma by saying, well, it turns out technology is just bad. We never should have invented it. Roll it back. Get, uh, when John, in his introduction, said, how many of you can imagine life without this? A bunch of you said, please, please, I would like to imagine that life. But we also acknowledge that there are some cases where this, these devices seem to develop, uh, deliver real benefit. And even the third graders are like, hey, in case of emergency, it can be pretty handy to have one of those things. So I don't think we can simply say it's bad. Another thing that I hear quite commonly, uh, not least from fellow Christians, is, well, technology is neither good nor bad. It's just neutral. And it's whatever you do with it. I'm, you've probably thought some version of this. It's a sort of natural way to think about it. Well, maybe it's neither good nor bad. It's just a question of what we make of it. But I actually, for one thing, I don't think this actually solves our dilemma. And more fundamentally, I don't actually think as a Christian, if you have a world, a view of the world that's really shaped by the Christian view of the world, I'm not sure you can say that it's neutral 
Because that conflicts with a Christian view, not just of culture, but of creation. What did God say over and over as God created the material world? God said it's good, 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 and then on day six, very good. The Christian doctrine of creation, that is the bringing into being of all that is, all the material we have to work with, is not a kind of um, modern or secular view in which matter is mere material, neither good nor bad, no meaning, no value, just, just is. I mean, that would be a view that it's neutral. But this is not the story we inherit as Christians. I mean, imagine, actually, it is interesting to think. If, if Genesis 1, you know, God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night. And God beheld the light, and it was neutral. And then on day 4, God creates the sun, the moon, and the whole canopy of stars. And at the end of the day 4, God rested and beheld what he had made at neutral. And then on day 6, when human beings made in his image, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, filled, told them to be... Uh, multiply, fill the earth, and then God saw everything had made it was very neutral. (laughs) This is not our story. It doesn't sound like our story at all. In fact, we live in a world that is created very good, and culture, of which technology is a part, is the human response to that world. It's the very goodness we draw out of a world that has all this potential and possibility in it. And at our best, when we make culture, including our tools and our technology, when we till it and tend it and keep it, when we multiply and fill it, it's actually not meant to be anything but very good. So the question I think we have to wrestle with is what kind of technology would answer to that call to very goodness that God wrote into his creation, and celebrated as he did his work of creation, what would be our technological response to the possibilities of the world that would actually be very good? Or to put it another way, what is technology very good for? And then maybe there are some things that it's not very good for, and we're asking it to do things that it never was designed for, or asking us to do things that are not very good for us. So this is what I've been pondering. Um, I want to share kind of how I'm thinking about this now. I'm increasingly thinking about the, the fundamental question, what is very good for human beings? And that's another way, I suppose, of asking the question, under what conditions do human beings flourish? Under what conditions do human beings become everything they can be? And how can technology be part of that? And I suppose that if you were a Jewish person answering this question in Jesus' time or now, you might well ask that question in this form. What's the greatest commandment? Because for the Jews, the gift of God's law, God's willingness to tell us what we're meant to do to be human is God's greatest gift to us. So the greatest commandment would be that thing that God called us to do that most exemplifies who we are meant to be as people. And Jesus was asked this question, and he answered it in absolutely the most conventional way. He didn't, in this case, uh, he didn't invent anything that any other rabbi of his time would, have, would not have said. When he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What sums up human flourishing? What are human beings meant to be? He said, of course, (laughs) hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you are away. When you lie down and when you rise, bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. 
This is, in some ways, the central text of the people of Israel, the Shema Israel, for the Hebrew words with which it begins. Hear, O Israel. And then it says, you shall love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart, with all your soul. And then Jesus, who up to this point has been very conventional, he does something very unconventional. He adds something to the Shema, like the text that Jews then and now say faithfully every single day in exactly the same words. Jesus just sticks something else in. He says, and your mind and your strength. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And then he adds, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the highest good of human beings, to be wholehearted, whole-souled, whole-minded, whole-strengthed creatures, (laughs) and to apply all that to love. So you could think of what it is to be human as to be a heart-soul-mind-strength complex designed for love. And why do I say complex? Because you can't separate these. You can't tease them apart. You're not um, emotion without reason. You're not a brain without a body. You're not a body without a soul. You are a heart, soul, mind, strength complex, all meant to work together. So what's your heart? It's like your, it's all of your affections and your emotions that are drawn towards something. That It's not just about feelings, but it's also about your desire and your will. And then what's your soul? It's depth of self, fullness of self, the unique self that you are deep down. What's your mind, your capacity to think, to reason, to reflect? And then strength. You've got a body. It has capacity to actually work in the material world that God called good. And all of these things are meant to be wrapped together and applied to love of God who made us and love of the neighbor that God placed us with. So the question is, what kind of technology would be very good for that? That's what we should be making and seeking and using. But here is where we get to the crucial turn that we took just about, in some ways, just about 100 years ago. This is a very recent story, this thing we call technology. And about 100 years ago, really within the lifetime of my own parents who are in their 70s now, we began to introduce a new kind of culture into our lives as human beings that we had never had before, and we chose to use our growing mastery of the world, our growing understanding of how the world fundamentally worked, to create things that actually require less and less heart, soul, mind, and strength to use, and that rather than deeply connecting us to God and other people, actually disconnect and disengage us. So let me try to persuade you of this, because you may or may not think this could be right, but I want to suggest that we made an incredible turn just in in about a 100-year span toward things that don't require as much heart, soul, mind, and strength and don't lead you to love God and neighbor in the way we're meant to. And this is fundamentally the shift that I would call from tools to devices. The shift from tools to devices. So a tool... We've had tools for all of human history, and what tools do is they extend human capacities. Above all, perhaps, our bodily capacities, our bodily strength or skill. If you have a tool, you often can use your body in a more effective way. So a very simple example, if I want to fasten things together, uh, I might just with my bare hands be able to fasten things together, but boy, give me hammer and nails and the right kind of wood, and I can fasten things much more effectively. And the hammer and the nails are a kind of tool. They extend the the capacities I uh, naturally have or have by virtue of being created with this piece of culture. Uh, Now, the thing about a hammer, it looks, it's a very simple tool, doesn't look that hard to use until you actually try to do anything with a hammer, uh, at least if you're a 
kind of non-coordinated person like me, and you discover actually the tool itself requires a lot of you, especially to use it skillfully, right? So over time, specifically over the last hundred years, we've realized we could actually replace more and more things that are tool-like, that is, they extend your capacity, but they also require you to develop skill to use them, with things that actually work even better than any tool ever did and require way less of you in terms of strength and skill and, other, and mind and other kinds of capacities. So instead of a hammer, I could give you a nail gun. Now, what self-respecting guy is there who, if given the option of having a nail gun, would not go for the nail gun, right? Because, man, with a hammer, you're like, bang, 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 nail, 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 nail. With a nail gun, it's like, right? And, so much more power, much more capacity, but it really does not require, I won't say no skill, but I can, I'm much faster with a nail gun than I am with a hammer. I'm much more effective with a nail gun than a hammer. If you ask me to roof a house, God forbid that it's your house or my house, and, and you said, you know, you can either do it with a hammer or with a nail gun, I'll take the nail gun. I don't have the skill to do it with a hammer, but I could do it with a nail gun. And this fundamental shift is the fundamental shift from tool to device from things that actually require us to work with them to things that ideally would work without us at all because someone is working on a nail robot, like the Roomba of nail guns, that'll just go up on the roof without anyone having to be up there. It'll just be going and we'll just sit down there watching. I don't know, do you watch your Roomba vacuum like I do, just sort of delighting? It's just vacuuming. I'm not vacuuming, it's vacuuming. It's nailing, right? That's the ultimate device. And this is what we've been pursuing technologically. Every time you get an upgrade, what it basically gives you is it's requiring less of you to do the things you want it to do, and it's doing more things on its own. That's the basic promise of technology. One more example. Think about like, how you get from place to place. So um, you could just, with your body, get from place to place. It's called walking. Um, uh, every once in a while, people still do this in our, in our day and age. But, of course, if you wanted to go further or faster, you might initially in human history have uh, perhaps tamed a horse, domesticated a horse, learned how to ride a horse. And a horse can take you farther than you can go on your own. Uh, a horse has a certain kinds of stamina. But we start to develop tools that replace the horse. First, the horseless carriage, right? The automobile. So think about the early mechanical automobile. And this is a crucial development in human culture. And the car has, like, a horse has, by definition, one horsepower, right? Whereas this car probably had, I don't know, 150 horsepower, maybe? I mean, now, you know, entry-level cars have 180 horses, all working for you, all getting you where you want to go much faster. But we keep developing, right? Because actually this early car, the mechanical car, was quite tool-like. It actually asked a lot of you. It required a lot of strength to operate. Initially, you had to crank them. Uh, it, required, it didn't have power steering. It also required mind. You could actually learn how it worked. I remember my dad like showing me how to change the oil on a mechanical car and showing me how to uh, adjust the carburetor. And my dad, I would watch him working on these old cars we had that never worked very well, so they required a lot of his time, strength, skill, mind, attention, um, and took up a lot of his heart as well. And also, they were difficult enough to work with that I learned a lot of language from my father that I didn't hear at any other time. So they were very useful in all kinds of ways. Like, that was a lot like a tool. It required a lot of him. But as cars get better, as we upgrade them, they require less and less of us. So think about what cars look like today. You can think of a Tesla, but you can think of any kind of modern car. I don't put it up so much because it's electric powered as because it's basically a computer on wheels. Uh, it's like 90% computer, 10% car. 
And when you get one of these things, there's actually very little you can do with it, relatively speaking. So my family got a plug-in hybrid uh, a year or two ago, and I wanted to show my 16-year-old daughter like how the car works. So Amy, let's go out, and Dad will show you around the, the vehicle here. Um, so let's, let's pop the hood, Amy, and uh, see what's under there. So we open up the hood. Well, Amy, <clears throat> this big plastic thing covers the engine. And over here is a blue, this is where you put the windshield wiper fluid, right in here. And we're done. <laughs> I, had, I mean, I got no way to impress my daughter with my knowledge of this car because it doesn't ask anything of me. It's a computer on wheels that does what I need it to do. And of course, eventually, what's the goal? It's to eventually end up with not just a computational car, but a driverless car that won't even let you drive it. You can't drive it. And your first ride in a driverless car will be like one of the most ecstatic experiences of your life. You'll be like, ah, oh, it's driving itself. And your second through infinite ride in a driverless car will be the most boring experiences of your life. You'll be desperate for Netflix, and I promise you they will install it for you. Because it will ask nothing of you. Because as we move from tools to devices and to the kind of ultimate goal of technology, which I would call easy everywhere, nothing of our heart, soul, mind, or strength is required. And nothing of our heart, soul, mind, or strength is developed. We don't become anything different because nothing is pushing back against us. Nothing's requiring us to develop any kind of skill. Think about how different that is from riding a horse. How involving the act, I mean, riding a horse is a heart, soul, mind, strength activity, especially strength. I discovered muscles recently when I rode a horse for the first time in a long time that I did not know I had muscles in certain <laughs> other regions. And if I learned to really ride a horse, my mind would change. It's emotionally connecting. It actually touches your soul to be with this amazing, majestic creature that you then develop enough of a bond with and trust to ride. And you, you become physically different. Nothing like that happens when you're in a driverless car. <laughs> Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. But how are we ever to have the fullness of heart if all the things around us require no heart? How are we to have the fullness of our minds when we outsource all of our thinking? How are we to have the fullness of strength when they never ask us even to move? How will we become the kind of people who can be engaged and connected when we're filling our lives with things that with wonderful promise of ease disengage and disconnect us? The crazy thing is we could have made a different choice 100 years ago and we could still make a different choice today. How would we do this? For most of human history, when human beings applied their maximum ingenuity, understanding of the world, their maximum skill, their, what the Greeks would have called their techne, this Greek word that means kind of technical skill, capacity to shape the world so that it responds to us. When they applied their techne to the world, they didn't create devices, these things that work on their own, disengaging and disconnecting. Instead, they created something else, and it wasn't just tools. And the word I want to use for it in a broad way is they created instruments. 
So what do I mean by instruments? I mean something different from a tool in a way and something very different from a device. And I'm using the word instrument because I think, first of all, about musical instruments. And uh, here on stage behind me, we have this beautiful, well, several, amazing drum kit, a grand piano. Uh, there were folks playing guitar up here a few minutes ago. And each of these are instruments, right? Now, what is an instrument? It's highly technically sophisticated. Like, what goes into making that grand piano is quite extraordinary in terms of human skill. But it fully requires a human being to engage to play it. It doesn't play itself. It's not a player piano, right? It's not a piano device. Instead, it's an instrument. That is, it's something that extends human capacities in the way tools do, but actually develops our heart, soul, mind, strength capacity in a very unique way. So think about any musical instrument, but think also about scientific instruments, the kinds of instruments we use, telescope, microscope, to probe the world, to discover things about the world. Think in a way of cooking, I don't know if we call them instruments or implements, but all the things you use to make a great meal. It's not a microwave that cooks for you. It's the cast iron pan, it's the really sharp knife, and it's the you know, microplane grater that gets your Parmesan cheese to have this incredible translucent quality. Does anyone have these? I, th I think they're amazing, right? These are not non-technological, but they require us to be totally engaged with the world as we use them. And they, develop, they uh, deliver, as they develop us, they deliver some of the most meaningful human experiences. Uh, when I was in my mid-40s, I decided it was time for a midlife crisis. Uh, you either choose your midlife crisis or it chooses you. So you might as well like, just be proactive and choose your midlife crisis. So I decided my midlife crisis was going to be learning the cello. And uh, the reason I was interested particularly in the cello is my wife played violin, my, uh, my daughter was studying violin, and my son was very serious about, about the viola. And so I realized we were one cello short of a string quartet. And if dad would just get his act together and learn the cello, we would be able to play some string quartet music together. So I started studying the cello. Every week I'd go down to my neighbor's house who's a cello teacher, started absolute beginner. After three years, I was not murdering Bach anymore. I was maiming Bach. And I was able to actually play well enough that we could sit down on a Sunday afternoon and get out the stringed instruments and put some Mozart on the music stands, Anna Klein and Ock music. Um, which has a very easy cello part, dum, 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 right? Uh, or maybe the hymnal with four parts and just play together. And it turns out that being a string quartet is like the hardest thing for four human beings to do that exists in the world. And that actually trying to do it as a family will, will reveal all of your family dysfunctions in ways that you never quite imagined were there in that the sibling rivalries will emerge, the anxieties and insecurities of each member of the family will emerge, different parenting styles will emerge, responding to these difficulties, and it turns out that every single time we tried to do a family string quartet on these beautiful Sunday afternoons, someone, it ended with someone running out of the room in tears, and it was not always one of the kids. <laughs> it was very revealing, very painful, and the crazy thing was, during this extremely excruciating time of trying to get the family string quartet, I mean, I had imagined like the Von Trapp family, you know, just gathered around, and it was, it was more like the Adams family or something. It was just a disaster, right? But we'd go places with our teenage kids, and people would say to them, oh, what do you like to do with your family? And they would say, oh, we have a family string quartet. And they would say it as if it was a good thing. I would be like, were you at the last family string quartet experience? But it actually was so meaningful to our kids that in spite of how difficult it was, we did engage together, heart, soul, mind, and strength, trying to make some Mozart. 
And it actually was one of the things to this day that they remember, they're now off to college, but that they most remember as meaningful in our family. Why? Because it called everything out of us. It called us into relationship with each other. It demanded so much of us, and it formed so much in us because we were playing instruments, not devices. And actually, I've realized the times when I've most loved technology, genuinely benefited from it, have actually been the times when I was using it to learn something, when I was using it to stretch myself, not to disengage myself, but to engage in difficulty and formation and learning and growth. So here's what we really have got to think about. Could it be that we are meant to use all of the scientific ingenuity and skill that exists in our world, that exists above all in places like this peninsula that most of us are on this, this day, to design things for heart, soul, mind, strength complexes that are meant for love. What if instead of creating the iPhone, we had created the Wii phone? I, it sounds so corny, right? because we live in such an individualistic society. But what if we'd like built it from the, I mean, to this day, there's, there's no ability for more than one person to have an account on this. Because I, we have four people in my nuclear family, so we have to buy four of these. If we had a Wii phone, we'd only have to buy one. I get why they do this. But why didn't we design it from the ground up for love? Right now, think about the capacity of strength. We're living right now through the first non-infectious epidemic in the, in the history of human beings the first time there's been a massive public health crisis without an infectious agent, no virus, no bacteria. It's called metabolic syndrome. High blood pressure, prediabetes, uh, coronary disease. And it comes from inactivity. What if everything we designed was designed to fully use these bodies that we've been given and to develop our strength rather than asking us to sit and become little T-Rexes just sort of moving our fingers? And the crazy thing is, this thing, to get slightly computer science geek geeky for a moment, is what's called a Turing-complete universal machine. Now, not, it's very close. Those of you who are really geeky know it's not quite, but it's really close to what's called a Turing-complete universal machine. And this means this is not just another device, like the nail gun or the automobile. This thing can be anything you ask it to be. So you can either ask it to be the ultimate device, disengage me, disconnect me, distract me so I don't notice that I'm disengaged and disconnected. Or you can ask it to be the ultimate instrument to actually fully engage you with the world. What if we started asking our technology to do that? Turn our devices into instruments so that they were consecrated for the purpose of loving God and loving neighbor. When I think about this, I think about my friend Roz Picard. She's an engineer. She teaches at MIT's Media Lab. She has a whole lab at uh, MIT. And at the beginning of her career, Roz asked a very simple question. What would it look like to create technology that responded to human emotion, to actually start interacting with the heart? She called it affective computing, computing that pays attention to emotion. And out of Roz's labs, has come a series of developments that are absolutely amazing. First, she worked with people who have a very hard time expressing emotion, people on the autism spectrum, for whom it's very hard to communicate what they're feeling. And little devices that you can wear on your wrist can actually sense what you're feeling and communicate it to people around you. 
And the latest thing Roz's lab has, has created and the company she spun off called Empatica have created is actually addressing something quite different. It's, it's actually the need for neighbors. And it, it's for people who uh, have epilepsy and are susceptible to grand mal seizures. And it turns out that a device can tell when you are incipiently having a grand mal seizure, which, which paralyzes your body for a time. And when that's happening, there's one thing you really need. It's to be put in a safe position bodily where you're able to breathe, your airway is clear, and if, you're, if someone can take care of that for you, you'll, you'll be okay through the grand mal seizure. And her device can tell your nearest neighbor whom you trust and have given access that you're having that seizure so that they can reach you in time. Remember those third graders who were like, in case of emergency, you want one of these things? But you know, we, we sort of imagine, if I had a phone, I could call my family member. Well, when you're having a grand mal seizure, if your family member is across town, it's, it's too far. What you need is a neighbor. And Roz's device actually helps you connect with your literal neighbors who can then love you through your medical need. Could we become the kind of people who create this? If we're going to, we're going to have to become very different people. We're going to have to want something totally different from our technology. And so in our family, as I wrap up here, let me just share what we did. We decided we had to totally detox from the device paradigm and totally immerse ourselves in the instrument paradigm. So we made two big changes in our family. One had to do with time. We decided we needed a regular rhythm of Sabbath with all of our devices. So one hour a day, for us that's an air time. Uh, one day a week, for us that's usually Sunday. And one week a year, that's our vacation. We, anything that has an off switch, we turn off. And I don't actually just mean the computers and the phones, that we do turn those off, but uh, at dinner time, in our family, we turn off the artificial lights and we light candles. And amazing things happen at family dinners when you light candles. For one thing, your spouse suddenly has the glow of youth. It's just so romantic. You're like, oh, yes. Right. It's awesome. Life without devices is, a, is an engaged life. And we, we found we just had to have that in our family, in our marriage, with our friends, at least an hour a day, at least a day a week, at least a week a year. And then we changed the space that we lived in. And we rearranged the furniture. And we took all the devices, anything that worked by itself, we moved to the very edges of our house. And we brought into the center of our house things that absolutely require you to, to make them do something. So we got a grand piano, put that in the middle. We used the kids' college savings for that. We, uh, you know, any kid can go to college, but who can grow up with a grand piano, right? We put an art a craft table out with art supplies, lots of books, cooking, cooking every night together in the, in the kitchen. And a totally different life starts to emerge. In a world full of all the gifts that technology gives us, you're being reformed. Now let me tell you, if you do this, if you embrace this principle of Sabbath and this principle of rearranging space, you and your family will be bored like you have never been bored before, or at least not since like 1993. But on the other side of boredom is creativity. Creativity is only found on the other side of boredom. And on the other side of creativity is joy. And on the other side of joy is worship. We could be people who are not addicted to devices, but who are constantly in, with great ingenuity, creating instruments that fully engage us and our neighbors in loving God and loving each other. I think there are some third graders who want to grow up in that kind of world. One last thing. Heart, soul, mind, strength. How do you do all that together? How do you fully bring your emotion? How do you fully bring the depth of who you are 
bring your mind and use your body at the same time. We have a chance to actually do it together in just one minute, and it's to sing. Because when you sing, if you do it right, you feel with your heart. You reach down into the depths of who you are. Your mind reflects on these beautiful words we're about to sing. And you've got to do it with all your strength. And when you get to do that in an environment of love, of neighbor, and of God, it's a rare and beautiful thing. Let's do that together after we pray. Set us free, God, from the things that do too much for us. Forgive us for wanting our lives to be easy. Forgive us for using all our skill just to disengage and disconnect. And would you fill us with your spirit so that we can use all our skill to engage more deeply in your world, to connect more deeply with our neighbors, and above all, to give everything we have, all that we are, in love to you. In Jesus' name.